All right, if you'll take your Bible and outline and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Um, so uh, my wife got on to me last week that I was moving too fast um, last Sunday. So uh, I took this message that I had for this morning and split it in two, okay? So you're getting half of it this week and half of it next week, uh, which just means I doubled the material. But it makes you feel better But uh, along the way. No. Uh, so uh, we are in this series on winning your war. And t- the title of today's message is uh, Watch What You Wear. Watch What You Wear. Um, I don't know about you, but when I read a book... Um, I don't like e-books. Like, I don't like books on a tablet. I don't like books on my you know, iPad. I want a physical book in my hand. And the reason why is because I like to have a pen and, and a highlighter. So as I'm reading, I'm marking, I'm highlighting, I'm making notes in the margin. Any of you who've, who have uh, borrowed a book from me, you know that when you read a book that I've already read that you're going to see that it's already been marked, highlighted, notes, in the, which some people say, you know, that's, I, I really like that because then I get a gist of really quickly about what the book's talking about. Other people say it's distracting. So uh, I don't know what it is for you, but I just know that when I'm, I'm doing that, uh, it just helps me concentrate on what I'm reading. But inevitably, as I'm reading, I will drop a pen on my shirt or on my pants or a marker, and I've got a stain, right? Stain on my shirt, stain on my pants. Now, my wife does a wonderful job of trying to get those out, but sometimes uh, the stain is so severe that you cannot remove it. It might be red ink on a white shirt. Uh, one time I was playing golf, and at the turn I got a hot dog, and I never get a, a hot dog with mustard, but that day I did, and I got the, you know, I'm eating and in a hurry, and the mustard drips right down the front of my white shirt, and when that gets baked on all day long, you can't get that stain out. It is permanent, and so sometimes there are stains that we can remove. Sometimes there are stains that are permanent in our lives. Those of you who are mothers, you know all about trying to remove stains from your children's clothing, especially if they play in sports. You spend hours trying to get grass stains out of their uniforms uh, in preparation for the next game. So not only do we deal with stains on our clothes, but we also deal with stains on our soul. God created you not just as a physical being, but he also created you as a spiritual being which means that we are made of spirit, soul, and body. Your soul is your mind, will, and emotions. And there are things that happen to us in the course of our lifetimes that stains our soul. Now, every single one of us, we sin, right? We do things that are sinful. Now, you, you may want to call it something else. People don't like to admit they sin. They call it a mistake, like, oops, I made a mistake. I'll correct that later on. But the Bible calls it sin, and sin is described in multiple different ways. It's missing the mark. It's an act of rebellion. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a defilement. It's, uh, there's like an uncleanness. And so we sin, and we are sinned against. That is, people do things to us. They say things to us that creates a tremendous amount of hurt and pain in our lives. And we've all experienced that. They are deep wounds. 
that result in broken hearts, that result in hurt and guilt and shame. And so we tend to respond to these deep wounds by making what I want to call inner vows. Now, we're going to focus on the inner vows next week. We're going to deal with guilt and shame this week. But I do want to kind of set up the scenario and kind of give you a teaser trailer in in preparation. And so when you make these inner vows, you are opening up yourself to demonic schemes that Paul warns us about, that Satan comes at us with very subtly. We open ourselves up to these demonic schemes and deception, and this is what we call spiritual war. When we are hurting, when we are suffering, when somebody has betrayed us, somebody has abandoned you, somebody has abused you in some form or fashion, and you're hurting so greatly, you never want to experience that hurt again. That's just a natural human defense mechanism. I don't ever want to feel this hurt, this pain, this betrayal, this sense of abandonment ever, ever again in my life. And so this is when we begin to make vows. And so here's kind of the the scenario is that you have a hurt, it gets immersed in a lie, and out of that lie, you make a vow. So somebody hurts you, Satan comes along and immerses that pain into a lie, and Based on that lie, you make an inner vow. Here's the danger of the inner vow, is that we will hold on to those inner vows like they are a family heirloom, and we will hold them more authoritative in our lives than even God's word itself. So let me give you an example, and we'll look at many examples next week. I'll just give you one today. Those of you who have ever been betrayed by somebody, that is, somebody hurt you deeply, they betrayed you in some form or fashion, And so because of the hurt, so you start with the hurt, you go, so in your mind you're thinking, um, listen, I will never trust another person again, not even God. That's the hurt talking. I just can't trust people ever again, not not even God. They're not going to be there when I need them. They're going to let me down. I'm going to experience this hurt all over again if I trust them. I'm just not going to do it. So then comes the lie Satan immerses you in. You cannot trust anyone. And then you make the inner vow. And so you put two and two together and you think to yourself, well, okay, that means, that means I must take care of myself. I must take care of myself. I can't trust others. I can't trust God. I, I have to do this on my own. It's what we call the orphan spirit that says, if it's going to be, it's going to be up to me. So now you made this inner vow, and you think in your mind, and the, way you, the reason you justify this in your mind, this inner vow, is that you start telling your story to anyone who will listen. Let me tell you about the terrible thing that happened to me. And you just keep reinforcing the hurt. Like It's like you keep that wound open and fresh and new, and Satan comes at the lies. See, he told you, you can't trust anyone. They're going to let you down. They're going to abandon you. They're going to betray you at some point. You can't even trust God. That's right. I can't. I've got to do this on my own. So we try, and we fail miserably. And as a result of that, we thought that this inner vow would keep us from feeling or experiencing future pain, but it doesn't happen. Now, here's what you've done. This is the subtleness of Satan. You have now put your feelings in the driver's seat of your life. And that's a terrible place for your feelings to be. Because when they drive you, they drive you into areas that you really don't want to go. And it's areas that Satan will keep you um, kind of um, 
rather than experiencing God's freedom, he's going to kind of keep you incarcerated to that past hurt. And you, like a ball and chain, you'll carry that past hurt everywhere you go. And anyone you can get to listen to your story, you're going to tell your story over and over again as you're reinforcing that inner vow that you think is going to protect you from future hurt and harm, and it just doesn't. So now that's when people sin against us, right? So we make these inner vows. What about when we sin? When we sin, we experience two things initially, guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. If you're not experiencing guilt and shame, either your heart has become hardened or your conscience has been seared. That is, it, it no longer feels anything. It's, it's like branding something with a hot iron. And those are, that's a very dangerous place to be. And certainly um, lo- a lot of us, not many of us, especially unbelievers, get to that point where they say, we don't even acknowledge sin anymore. We don't even blush about sin anymore. We don't feel any sense of guilt or shame in what we do. I know before I was, became a follower of Jesus, I felt very little guilt or shame about the things I did. Now, if I hurt somebody in some way that was a family member, I might have felt a twinge of guilt, maybe some shame, but very little. And that's the life of an unbeliever. But when you get saved, now all of a sudden when you sin, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you who, who, and you feel this initial guilt and this shame. And our natural tendency is to clothe ourselves in our guilt and in our shame. So let me make this statement. When we talk about people who have sinned and been sinned against, things are put on you and things are put in you that will ultimately destroy you if you're not careful. And what is put on you is guilt and shame. What is put in you is our vows and unforgiveness. So today we're going to talk about the aspect of guilt and shame. Next week we're going to talk about inner vows. And the third week we're going to talk about forgiveness. Because if you do not get a handle on those three areas of your life when it comes to spiritual warfare, I can assure you, you will not walk in the freedom of Jesus. You will not walk in his victory. You will keep yourself enslaved and imprisoned because you are giving a foothold to Satan in your life. Spiritual life is all about how you can live in freedom in spite of what you've done and in spite of what has been done to you. So my life calling is simply this. It is to help people find forgiveness and freedom through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I do. That's my life's calling. God's calling upon my life. This is why I teach the Word of God. This all ties back to Satan's attack on your identity. You're going to hear me say this several times. You can either be defined by what you have done, what has been done to you, or by what Jesus has done for you. You can be defined by either what you have done, what has been done to you, or what Jesus has done for you. For example, if I, if I wrap my identity about, around what I've done, right? you go to a typical AA meeting, everybody who is there, there's an alcoholic, what are they going to do? They're going to stand up when they want to speak, and they're going to say, hey, hi, my name is Greg, I'm an alcoholic. Guess what they've just done? They've identified themselves as an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. I'll always be an alcoholic. That's all I'll ever be. And therefore, their identity is now wrapped around something they have done in the past that they're seeking to overcome. Right? That's a horrible way to set up your identity. We want to set up our identity in Christ because that's where our freedom is. We are riding on the back of the victory of Jesus, which is why I said from the very beginning, if you take the gospel of Jesus Christ and make it applicable to your life, 
It is the answer to every problem you have. So my identity is not wrapped up in what I have done. My identity is wrapped up in what Jesus has done for me and who I have become now that I am in Christ and he is in me. You get the picture? All right, so we're going to kind of flesh this out. This is very, very strategic because if you don't get this right, it'll be very difficult, if not impossible, to live in freedom. And we want you living in freedom. So we're going to look at an example of this in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Let me just set up the scenario. We're only going to read a few of the verses, not the whole chapter. Um, uh, This is probably not a chapter you read for your devotional, so I'm going to try to keep this rated PG. Uh, But basically what happens, there is a young man whose name is Amon. Amon is the son of David, King David. King David had many sons, and so Amon had a brother named Absalom, who was his stepbrother, and Absalom had a sister named Tamar, who was obviously Ammon's stepsister. Well, Ammon had a very strange affection for his stepsister, so much so that it was driving him crazy. And so he devised a plot by which he could get Tamar into his bedroom alone with her, and then he was going to solicit her for a sexual encounter. And so he came up with this elaborate scheme. He acted like he was sick and uh, sent word to David, hey, David, could you send Tamar to me? And she makes this wonderful bread, and I think it would really help what ails me. And so she does. She, you know, innocent and uh, unbeknownst to what's happening. And so she makes this bread. She brings it into his chambers. And then Ammon sends everybody else away except Tamar and asks her to come and to serve him this bread. And as she comes near to Ammon, uh, he rises up and he, uh, he says to her, in essence, hey, I, I want you to come and I want you to sleep with me. And so she begins to resist. Look in uh, chapter 13 and verse 12. And he's, you know, he's grabbing her, trying to drag her into bed. Do, don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you, but he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. And so there is a rape that takes place, a defilement is what the Bible describes it. Now, what happens to a rape victim? A rape victim feels very violated, unclean. So oftentimes, one of the very first things they're going to do is going to run and take a shower, trying to wash off what they consider the filth that has been placed upon their body. Here's the problem. Water doesn't go as deep as the soul because there's not just a staining of the body. There is a staining of the soul that needs to be cleansed. See, this is what happens when people get hurt. It may not be a rape. It may not be something as violent as this in your life, but people have hurt you. People have betrayed you in certain ways, and it is, it is a betrayal against you, and therefore there's the staining of the soul, and then there are things you have done, perhaps, that have created this tremendous amount of guilt and shame in your life. So look in verse 15. Then Ammon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Ammon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her, and he called his personal servant and said, get this woman, notice how he changed, not Tamar, this woman, like she's some inanimate object, 
out of here and bolt the door after her. So there's a profound sense of rejection. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and she was wearing a richly ornamented robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head, tore the, the ornamented robe she was wearing, and she put her hand on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has Ammon your brother been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. So what is he telling her to do? Don't tell anybody about this. Keep it to yourself. Horrible advice. Don't take this thing to heart as though she couldn't. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house as a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Problem is, King David did nothing about it. That's another story for another day. Absalom never said a word to Ammon, either good or bad. He hated Ammon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. And if you were to continue to read on, Absalom will take vengeance upon Ammon and he will put him to death. And so here we have, we can only imagine the sense of shame, the sense of embarrassment uh, that Tamar is experiencing. She resisted but she was defiled anyways. Listen, all sexual abuse is demonic. It never is coming from heaven down from the heavenly father. It's always coming from hell up from demonic beings. All right, so when people have those thoughts and those desires, as Satan is taking the flesh, the uh, uh, unredeemed part of our thought processes and ties that to an emotion and he drives people to do things. Now, it's not that Ammon was not responsible. You do this, you're fully responsible for your actions. You're always responsible. Listen, Satan can't make you do anything. He can only make suggestions. He can only take your, your inner drives and push them to boundaries they should not go. And so um, Tamar felt defiled. She felt unclean. She felt broken. She felt dirty. She felt undeserving. And in our day and time, in our society, in the good old U.S. of A., one out of every four women in our nation are raped. And those statistics are probably low because many of them don't even report it. And so this is an issue that we deal with in our own society. Defilement is something we wear and we assume and that we are unable and incapable of changing that sense of defilement. I mean, how, how do I cleanse myself through Jesus? I don't know about you, but when I look back over my life and I think about all the sins that I've committed, all the things that I've done, all the people that I've hurt, all the things that... Um, cause harm in the lives of others. If you are not careful, you can live your entire Christian life wrapped up wearing the robe of guilt and shame throughout the course of your Christian life. And so you, you, you are told, well, you know, you gave your life to Jesus. God, Jesus forgave you of your sins. And some of you may or may not feel forgiven, or you may not feel worthy of forgiveness. And, and so you, you, you just keep, every day you get up and you wear you wear the robe of guilt, and you wear the robe of shame, and you walk in that guilt, and you walk in that shame, and maybe it's not something you did. Maybe it was something that was done against you, and again, you get up every morning. You robe yourself in guilt. You robe yourself in shame because uh, abuse victims, that's what we do. That's how we respond. 
And you can, uh, again, you can try to cleanse yourself, but there's no way that you can do that. There are many who feel loved by God, but at the same time, you feel broken, you feel defiled, you feel damaged, you feel impure, you feel unclean, you feel unchangeable on the inside. And this is especially true when you and I have a besetting sin that we keep going back to over and over and over and over again. We make promises to God we're never going to do it again. And we, you know, we try it as we might. And we, we put all, forth all the willpower we can muster. And we say, Lord, I, I feel so dirty. I feel so ashamed. I feel so guilty. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to look at that again. I'm going to look at that pornography again. I'm not going to do this in my workplace again. I'm not going to treat this person this way again. And we find ourselves going right back to it. And we are a mess. And so now we, we need to know what. What do we do about this? So listen to the words of David. Here, have mercy on me. This is David in Psalm 51 after he had committed sin with Bathsheba. You remember that story, right? So he calls her to his chambers. They have a child together. He makes sure Uriah, her husband, is put on the front lines and killed. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Listen to this. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Because why? Sin leaves us feeling defiled. What causes this sense of defilement, this uncleanness that we experience? I'm going to mention just four uh, briefly. And this first one is this. Obviously sin, right? Ezekiel 14, 11 says, Then the people of Israel will no longer stray from me, nor will they defile themselves anymore with all their sins. Listen, you don't have to create massive sin in order to feel unclean before God, to feel kind of dirty in your soul. And you try to pray, and then Satan, what's Satan do? He starts heaping upon you accusations. You see, in Revelation 12, he says he's the accuser of the brethren of Christ, the believers of Christ. So he heaps accusations. Why would you be praying for something like that? Don't you remember what you did yesterday? Do you remember what you said you wouldn't do ever again, but you did it anyways? Don't you remember? Don't you remember this? And so it might be the sin of lying. It might, you know, you promised God you wouldn't lie anymore. It might be you gossiping or being gossiped about. Maybe you stole something. It's very interesting when you read in Scripture of the six things, yes, seven things that God hates, three of them have to do with our tongues. Things like lying and gossip and those, those issues. And so it, we just feel unclean. The second one is spiritual sin. Leviticus 19.31 says, Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. So when you take the Christian faith and you intermingle it with the occult or witchcraft, whether it be you know, black magic or white magic or whatever somebody wants to call it, or with you know, a bit of involvement with Wicca, or spells, or here's one that gets a lot of believers. We, we, we kind of toy with this, thinking it's, it's harmless, horoscopes. God loathes horoscopes. It is a part of the occult. And so God says, do not do those things. Keep your soul cleansed from those things. And you may have grown up into a home where a parent was involved with casting spells. Uh, we just, Marl and I met with someone not long ago and uh, who had an aunt 
who was very much in the occult and cast spells over her entire family that was still affecting their family in the here and now, in the present. And so the soul is to be pure and clean, exclusively directed to our love for God, not involved in casting spells and other demonic activities. Number three is violence. Lamentations 4.14, now they grope through the streets like men who are blind. They are so defiled with blood that no one dares to touch their garments. Maybe some of you grew up in a household filled with violence. Your dad beat your mother, or maybe the other way around. I don't know. Uh, maybe you were the, the, uh, the object of the abuse. And so it stains the soul. There's so much hurt, and there's so much betrayal, and, and there's just so much pain that is carried throughout the course of your lifetime, and your memory bank goes back to that immediately, and Satan, if you're not careful, he's going to try to leverage those things against you so that he can keep you in prison and incarcerated in your own uh, hurt and pain so that you continue to live off of inward uh, vows. Maybe you dated somebody, uh, a boyfriend who worked through fear and intimidation and control, um, threat of violence. We are made in the image of God to have dignity and value and respect and love, not to be wounded and damaged and to be broken inside by the violence of others. Number four, sexual sin. There is a myth that what you do in your body really doesn't affect your soul. That is a myth. That is a lie of the evil one. That is not what the Bible teaches. So some sexual sins would be as what we've read here is rape. Um, Rape is not just an act of violence against the body. It is an act of violence against the soul. That's why a rape victim feels empty and lonely, ashamed, judged. You know what the evil one does with that person like that? He makes them feel left out, lonely, less than. No one will ever want you. No one would ever respect you if they found out about that. And so sometimes many people live in their own personal pain and woundedness. The second is incest. First Chronicles 5.1, Reuben was defiling his father Jacob by sleeping with his stepmother. There are many people who in life have been the victim of incest, right? You, you have been forced to have sexual involvement with somebody who is, who is related to you. And so, um, again, statistically, a third of you today, right here, have been sexually abused, whether by rape, incest, or molestation. And, uh, and the, these things that have been done to you are de degrading, disgusting, debilitating. It stains your soul. Adultery is another one. It speaks of when a, a, a woman or a man defiles themselves and being unfaithful to their, their spouse now, if you're married, there's, there, sexual adultery can happen not just physically. It can be something that is verbal to something that is um, visual, like with, with pornography. The scripture says you're defiling the marriage bed. Prostitution is another one. Um, there, there are ways that you can, you, you know, there's other things that could be listed here. You get the picture. When you think about all of the sexual sin that happens through the course of humanity, Every given year, do you see how many people walk around with souls that are absolutely stained, filled with guilt and shame and self-loathing and all the other things that keeps them tied down and um, incarcerated in this self-loathing um, kind of existence in life? 
And you can come along and say, you know, Jesus can heal that. Jesus can cleanse that. And in their mind, they may intellectually be able to grasp that somewhat. But when it comes to actually experiencing that, this is why the Bible has clear warnings about sexual sin. Because it goes deeper than any other sin that is experienced by a human being. Now, that being said, about defilement, places then can become defiled. For example, Tamar, you know where she would never want to go back again? To the home of her brother Ammon. It's a defiled spot. It's the spot where that happened. The rape took place. And she would not return there. Maybe there are some places you will not go. Neighborhoods, cities, homes. You don't ever want to go back to the house where that happened to you. Whatever that is. You remember the, the movie um, Forrest Gump? His, her, his friend Jenny, and she was constantly being raped by her father all of her life as a child. And her father dies, and she returns back. She's gone for many, many years. She returns back, and when she sees that house, that place of defilement, she takes up rocks and just starts hurling them at the house as fast as she can because it is a place that is a reminder of what happened. Objects become defiled. You can defile, again, your marriage bed. You can defile um, a lot of things. God wants us to be pure and consecrated unto himself and the covenant of marriage. And so sometimes there are certain objects that trigger this defilement, this guilt and shame in your life. People can become defiled, considered unclean. You know, in Jesus' day and time, in the Old Testament, uh, for example, if you touched a dead body, you were considered unclean and unworthy to go into the worship at the tabernacle, later the temple. You had to go through a time of cleansing, a time of washing. When the, when the priests were you know, uh, operating in the temple and the tabernacle, their priestly duties, they went through ceremonial washings to wash away their, their defilement. In Jesus' day and time, there was a whole group of people, right, called lepers, who, who were defiled according to uh, the law and to society. They had to live in colonies. They had to yell unclean when they walked down the streets. And yet Jesus went up and he touched the lepers and he spoke to the lepers and he healed the lepers. Why? Because Jesus can bring healing where there is defilement, where there's uncleanliness. Dates can become defiled. These are negative anniversaries. Remember, God creates Satan counterfeits. God creates holidays as as days of what? Celebration, of thanking God for what, what we have and what God's done and great uh, holy days. Satan comes along and he defiles our lives through what people do and through what we do, and now all of a sudden there's that date that can be def defiled. Like it's on the calendar. This is the date that my spouse left me. This is the date that my spouse cheated on me. This is the date that, and you, you start filling in the dates, that somebody violated me, betrayed me. You know, my business partner swindled me. And those things are lodged in our soul. So the consequences of our uncleanness is this. It's the same for all of us. You begin, if as a believer, you begin to lose your joy of your salvation, and you exchange the joy for guilt, shame, and fear. Hence why we make the inner vows. Now, if you were to go back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, we'll not go there for the sake of time, but you remember this, that when God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, because we always got to go back to the beginning and see where everything went wrong. 
There was no sense of guilt. There was no sense of shame. There was no fear of God. They walked with God in the coolness of the day. Why? Because there had been no defilement. No sin has been entered into the presence in the realm of the Garden of Eden. And so God's enemy, and our enemy, obviously, um, he, uh, he comes in and he, he mixes all of that up. Now, here's the interesting thing it says about Adam and Eve. It says, and here's, you wonder why, why did the author put this in there? They were naked and not ashamed. The word naked is more than just physical nakedness. It speaks to the depth of the soul. It's not just a body issue. It's a soul issue. It simply means that they had no secrets. They had no double life. They had nothing to conceal. They had nothing to hide. Adam knew everything about Eve. Eve knew everything about Adam. And God knew everything about both of them. And so there was no pretending. There was no covering up. There was no hiding anything. I mean, think about this. There's none of us sitting here today who do not have shame hovering over us. If I were to take your every thought and all your actions and play them up on the big screen for all of us to see, it wouldn't take very long before we'd be hanging our heads with a shame, a sense of shame and guilt and fear of how people are going to react when they see, when they understand what we are really about and what we're really like. And so in Genesis chapter 3, Satan so shows up, their adversary, and he gets them to rebel against God, just as he cosmically rebelled against God. And what was the first thing they did? They covered themselves, right? They, 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 they took fig leaves and covered themselves, their nakedness, because they felt guilt, and they felt shame, and they felt fear because they ran and hid from God. God comes in the garden looking for them, now, what they should have done is run to him and just acknowledge, Lord, we know what you said not to do this, but we've done it, and we feel bad, and we feel guilty and shameful. God, can you help us? But that's not what they did. They did what we do. We run, we hide, we, we pretend, we wear masks, right? And so this is, this is the essence of what God is showing to us here is that God comes looking for them. He doesn't just abandon them. He, he uses it as an opportunity to bring cleansing and to bring healing back into their lives. This is why oftentimes you may have a friend and you say, you know what, this is a person I love and man, all of a sudden they've just disappeared in my life. They've disappeared from church and I've called them. They won't answer the phone and I, I've tried to, you know, talk them, come back, small group, come back to church. They won't have anything to do with it. Can I almost assure you that it's because there is some sense of guilt or shame or fear or all three that's going on in their life, which is what's pushing them away. So what did God do? He covered their shame. He took off their fig leaves and he put upon them the skin of, of an animal that a third party, innocent party, that would give its life for their guilt and their shame to eradicate their fear. God says, I'm covering you. I'm cleansing you. I'm making you whole once again. Now, there were consequences to their sin that, that were, you know, inevitable that we all experienced, regardless of God's cleansing. So again, you can be defined by what you have done, what you has been done to you, or you can be defined by what Jesus has done for you. So here's my third point, is that the cure for our uncleanness is that don't ever forget this. Do not ever forget this. Jesus makes you clean. 
Jesus didn't come just to forgive you of your sin. He came to cleanse the soul. He came to heal the soul. He, he came to bandage up the wounds. So that's why Paul said the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, the power to save, to forgive sins, to remove guilt, the power to heal, to cleanse us, to heal us, to remove the shame, to remove the fear in the relationship and to deliver us, right? He wants, to, he wants us to walk in freedom. He doesn't want us walk, getting up every day, clothing myself, robing myself with the robe of unrighteousness, with the robe of shame, with the robe of guilt, with the robe of fear. God, that's not the robe God wants us to wear. He wants us to wear the robe of righteousness, the robe of Jesus, the robe of forgiveness, the, the, ro the robe of cleansing, the robe of wholeness, the robe of healing. That's the robe he wants us to wear. And that robe is found only in Jesus Christ. Every day we decide what we're going to wear on our body, and it's important. Some of you put a lot of thought in that today before you came here. Some of you put little thought. All right, so wherever you are on the spectrum, it really doesn't matter. I'm glad you're here. Um, so, but because we, what we wear on our body projects who we are, but what you wear on your soul projects who Christ is in you. The gospel applied is the answer to your defilement, to your shame, to your shame-filled problems. So I have one last passage I want you to turn to, and this is the Old Testament, go right and it's, it's, it's the book of Zechariah. If you find Malachi, that's the very last book in the Old Testament, and it's the book right before it. All right? Zechariah, because here is a beautiful picture that I want you to, and we're going to wrap this up, that, that I want you to get in your mind, because this is, what, this is what the Bible is showing us in Christ. All right? So it says in Zechariah chapter 3, then he showed me Joshua. Now Joshua is the high priest. The high priest represents the people of God. Stand before the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is who? It's pre-incarnate Jesus, right? So if you, you can read in Scripture in the Old Testament, an angel of the Lord. That refers to a common angel. But the, the angel of the Lord is Jesus pre-incarnate before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Now notice, <laughs> notice who's doing the rebuking here. Jesus, right? So when you're, when you're engaged in spiritual warfare, when Satan is accusing you and you're a follower of Jesus in Christ and he and you and you've been robed and wrapped up in the righteousness of Jesus, listen, you don't take on Satan yourself. This is, a, this is an issue between God and the demonic. You say, I don't say I rebuke you. I have no authority in and of myself. I simply, I draft off the victory of Jesus. I say, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. Because now I'm exercising my authority in Christ that has been given to me by the virtue of I become a follower of Jesus, right? So that's just a side note. Throw it in there for free. You don't need to pay me for that one. All right, here. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. 
The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin. I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head, so that they put a clean turban on his head and clothe him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Please, please, please note what happened. Here's Joshua standing in this place. He's representing all of us. This is like all of us are like Joshua. We're standing before the Lord in filthy clothing. We have sinned. Sin has been done against us. We have been defiled. We are unclean. This is our pre-Christian existence in the eyes of God, the Heavenly Father. This is why you need Jesus, right? So if you're out there watching online or right here, if you don't have Christ, listen, without Jesus and the victory of Christ being able to robe you in his righteousness, you stand before God, guilty as charged, robed up in filthy, defiled garments, and you can't do anything about it, but Jesus has already done something for you. Now you need to acknowledge that and then appropriate what Christ has done for you. So here we are. We're guilty before God. Satan's got the accusations going. Do you know what? Everything he accuses me of. Everything that he brings up is absolutely true. He doesn't have to lie about stuff. Uh, he, he knows all the stuff I've ever done, all the stuff I've ever thought, the way I was unclean before the Lord. But here is the beautiful picture. There is another voice, and it's Jesus, and he says, he says what is it? He says, listen, uh, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Uh, Joshua, it, what, it, watch, he was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Then the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. I've taken away your sin. I, who's, who's the I? Jesus, I will put on you what? Rich garments upon you. That is a beautiful, beautiful picture of what Christ has done for every single one of you. You are not just forgiven. You are clean and you're righteous and you are pure in Christ. And somebody says, well, but I don't live that way and I don't believe that and I don't, I don't, just don't, I, I don't know that I can grasp that. Please do. Because here's what the Bible says. 1 John 1, 7 says it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all, cleanses all unrighteousness. How much is all? All, past, present, future. When was that appropriated? When was that credited to your account? The day you gave your heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the, listen, he is, he is what makes you clean because Jesus has become the fountain. We used to sing a song, and it's in our hymnals. There was a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath its flood lose all their guilty stain. And so it's Christ who makes us clean. It is the, what the you know, scholars call the double imputation. And what that simply means is this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Christ became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of Jesus through him. So here's what Jesus did. When Jesus went to the cross, he took your garments and he put them on himself. And he died in your place. And then when he came off the cross and he was put in the grave, what did he leave behind? He left behind his grave clothes and he was resurrected. The moment you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, what Jesus did is he took that garment of robe of righteousness and he put it upon. He took off the old garment of guilt and shame and fear and he put on the garment of Christ that is pure and lovely and righteous. So when you go to the 
last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it says that one day we're going to be a part of a marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says that the church is robed in white. It is the righteous acts of the saints. Well, what are those righteous acts? Those righteous acts have been imputed, placed upon us, credited to us because of what Jesus has done. The church herself wasn't pure. Jesus was pure. Jesus made the church pure the moment they put their faith and their trust in him. You got that? So every single day, I want you to remind yourself that when you get up and you put on clothing on this physical body, you are clothing more than your body. You need to clothe your soul with the robe of righteousness, not the robe of accusation. There are two different robes. The robe of accusation. You do not want to wear the robe of accusation. Every day you are clothing your soul. So to give you a visual reminder, when you get up, uh, maybe you wash dishes, remind yourself you have been cleansed through the blood of Jesus. When you brush your teeth, you've been cleansed through the blood of Christ. When you bathe your body, you've been cleansed through the blood of Jesus. When you wash your car, you've been cleansed through the blood of Jesus. But you say, yeah, but I know I've been cleansed, but I keep doing these things and I keep committing these sins. And yeah, well, just like you don't wash your dishes once and that's good forever, you don't wash your body and it's good forever unless you're a teenager, uh, you know that you're going to cleanse yourself over and over. Listen, that's the, that's the fountain of Jesus. It just never stops flowing. Stop letting Satan keep you bound, shackled up, and tied up in the robe of accusation. You need to live your life in the robe of righteousness. And so all I'm doing is I'm taking the gospel of Christ and I'm applying it to my life. And when I sin... Does the Holy Spirit convict? Absolutely. But what does Satan, remember, whatever God does, Satan counterfeits. What does Satan do? Accusation, accusation, accusation. So what do I say? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I rebuke you. Because I've been robed in the righteousness of Jesus. I am in Christ and he is in me. I am new. I am changed. I am pure. I am holy. I am adopted. I am sealed. I am a child of the living God. That is your identity. That is what you want to live out of. And you say, well, I don't know that I can believe it. Well, if you'll start believing it, then you'll start living it. Rather than walking around with our heads hung so, so low and thinking, oh, Lord, you know, I'm just a dirty, rotten, defiled old sinner. That was your past life. That's who you used to be. That's no longer who you are in the eyes of God. Stop living. Stop allowing yourself to be defined by what you have done, what others have done to you. But you want to live your life on the basis of what Christ has done for you. Let's bow our heads.